0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so let's get into it. Israel had their elections today. As of right now, we don't have the official results, but we will bring you all articles leading up to and including Election Day. First, we're going to start off with uh, an obituary from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. Judith Elaine Ziedler, January 18, 1930 to October 31, 2022, author unknown. If you've been anywhere in the Los Angeles cultural, culinary, or culinary scene, you probably met Judy Ziedler. She most likely handed you one of her unique business cards with a big, bright, joyful smile, and you became friends on the spot. Hint: she would have been wearing an I Love Italy pin. After a long dolce vita and a long Ziedler goodbye. Native Angelino and lifelong resident Julie Ziedler has traveled on. We are heartbroken to lose her. From humble beginnings in Boyle Heights to international renown, she lived a beautiful life to the fullest with enthusiasm, grace, and charm. Born to Molly, uh, Mo- uh, Molly and Lewis Tennis in 1930, she grew up in City Terrace, Eagle Rock, Lamert Park, And attended Dorsey High School. At 14 she met Marvin Zedler and at 16 decided he would be her mate, playmate and soulmate and theirs became a love story for the ages. They married in 1950 and in 1963 with four children and a fifth on the way. They moved to a ranch in Chopanga Canyon to raise uh, Shetland ponies and the many farm animals that came with the ranch. Their first night there, They thought the screaming of the resident peacock was a baby abandoned in the hills, and Judy once killed a rattlesnake with a broom when she spied it slithering into a window. She was far from an ordinary 60s housewife. Her career in cuisine began when she baked her signature strudel for the Discovery Inn down the road, and they they asked if she could deliver it daily that led to nine published cookbooks, including the landmark Gourmet Jewish Cookbook and the now collector's item Disneyland Cookbook. Over two decades, as the Jewish food consultant for the Los Angeles Times, including her syndicated column, followed by articles in the Jewish Journal and Tribe magazine, countless popular cooking classes taught in her kitchen and Judy's kitchen, her cooking show, Jewish Television Network, said to be its uh, best-known program. Uh, on Judy's kitchen, she taught classic as well as innovative recipes, and later hosted the ma- uh, many of her, the best chefs of Los Angeles. Along the way, Judy developed a love for Italy while traveling with Marvino on buying trips for Ziedler and Ziedler. In Italy, they found friends, food, wine, and bocce. They hosted many bocce tournaments or bocce tournaments in their backyard but Bacci was hardly the only expression of her love of Italy. Her final book, Italy Cooks, was a memoir of 35 years of travel through Italy, including recipes from some of their friends' top uh, top restaurants like the Santini and Bravilli families and Dario Cecchini. Judy's interest extended beyond her love of Italian food and culture to the local art scene in Southern California. As a founding member with Marvin of the Z- uh, Skirball Cultural Center, she helped create Zither's Cafe, Recipes by Judy, and the new Judy's Counter. If you've eaten at Citrus Capo, Cora's Cafe, Brentwood, Brentwood Cafe, or the iconic Broadway Deli, you have experienced her hospitality. She was a founding member of LACMA, Mocha, and the Kirk Douglas Theater. Judy generously supported the music center and the Hollywood Bowl, as well as many other causes in Los Angeles, from the arts to political campaigns to social justice to women's issues to education. Judy loved music and the picnics in their box at the Hollywood Bowl on Thursday nights every summer for 30 summers. Over the years, they amassed an unbelievable collection of contemporary art and befriended many artists. The greatest sorrow in her blessed life was the sudden loss of her beloved son Mark in 2021. She is also predeceased by her sisters Sharon and brothers-in-law Leland and Jerry. She is survived by her adored husband Marvin, sister-in-law Marian, and sister and brother-in-law Lorraine and Harris. Her four children: Susan, Leo, Kathy, Steve, Paul, Amber, and Zeke J. Daughter-in-law Amy, grandchildren. Ariella, Melina, Aaron, Amanda, Normandy, Jamaica, Meka, Stephen, Zane, Leah, and Quest. Great grandchildren: Ava, Amy, Avery, and Destry. Loving nephews and nieces, and thousands of friends in Los Angeles, across the U.S. and in Italy. Baci Bachi. We thank her tender, loving caregivers: Maria, Elena, Geraldine, Juvi, Jeanette, and Heather. Funeral services will be held on Thursday, November 3rd, 1230 p.m. at Mount Sinai Memorial Park. Donations in lieu of flowers to Skirball Cultural Center. That was Judith Elaine Ziedler, January 18, 1930 to October 31, 2022. Author unknown from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November second, 2, 2022. All right, let's bring you up to speed with the elections in Israel. From the... Uh, Prospective section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, uh, November 1, 2022, minor parties to hold key to next Israeli government. Voters appear to be hopelessly deadlocked in the nation's fifth election in four years by Joseph Fetterman, Jerusalem. Israeli voters appear to be hopelessly deadlocked as the country heads to elections once again Tuesday with opinion polls saying the race is too close to forecast. Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who, served, go, who governed for 12 years before he was ousted last year, is asking voters to give him another chance, even as he stands trial, on corruption charges. The current Prime Minister, Yal Lapid, has billed himself as a voice of decency and unity. He hopes his brief term as head of a caretaker government has demonstrated to voters that someone besides Netanyahu can lead the country. In Israel's fragmented political system, neither Netanyahu's hardline Likud party nor Lepid's centrist Yesh Atid is expected to capture enough seats in parliament to form a new government. Instead, each hopes to secure the required 61-seat majority in the Knesset with the support of smaller political allies. If neither succeeds, Israel could soon be facing another election after holding five in less than four years. Here's a look at the factors that could swing the outcome turnout. Both Lapid and NetYahu need strong turnout from their bases. NetYahu, who appeals to low-income religious and small-town voters with hawkish views toward the Palestinians, spent the summer touring Israel and delivering campaign speeches to adoring crowds from a bulletproof truck known as the Bibi Bus. Lapid, who is popular among secular and urban voters, has built up a formidable army of volunteers and party activists across the country. But the real key to the election could lie with Israel's Palestinian citizens who make up about 20% of the population. Arab voters, whose communities have long suffered from poverty, neglect, and discrimination, have little enthusiasm for either candidate and turnout turnout among them is expected to be low. But those who do vote tend to favor Lapid and his allies. If Arab voters turned out in modest numbers, that could give a lift to Lapid. If they stay home, as opinion polls have forecast, their absence could push Netanyahu to victory. Knesset Parties Any party that wins more than 3.25% of the vote makes it into Parliament, with seats devied up according to how many votes each qualified party captures. More than 10 parties can make it into the Knesset. Small parties that squeak past this threshold can find themselves in a powerful position to help form the next coalition. For those that fall short, their votes are wasted. Two venerable parties in the anti-Netanyahu bloc, Labour and Moretz, are hovering near the threshold in opinion polls. A failure by either of them to reach it would be devastating for Lapid. On the other hand, Jewish Home, a hard-line nationalist party that is loyal to Netanyahu, is also struggling. Polls indicate that the party will not make it into Parliament, but if it does, The Netanyahu bloc almost certainly will win. Power Brokers The far-right religious Zionism party has been the story of this campaign. Led by openly anti-Arab and homophobic politicians, the party has burst out of the extremist fringes of Israeli politics and is poised to emerge as one of the largest factions in parliament. The party is a strong ally of Netanyahu, and its leaders will expect a generous payout if they propel him to victory. In return, they have indicated that they will that, that they will try to erase the charges against him. On the other side, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who leads a small center-right party, could be critical for a Lapid victory. If Gantz can siphon votes from Netanyahu, he could prevent the former prime minister from his hoped-for comeback majority. Gantz also. Has, a good, has good relations with Netanyahu's religious allies and could potentially bring them over to Lepid's side. That can make him a powerful player in a coalition negotiations and could even position him to be a future prime minister. The Unexpected During Lepid's brief four-month term, Israel fought a three-day battle against Gaza militants, stepped up arrest raids to the occupied West Bank, and reached a diplomatic agreement with lebanon over a maritime border between the enemy countries an unexpected bout of violence or surprising diplomatic breakthroughs could potentially sway voters at the last moment that was minor parties to hold key to next israeli government by joseph fetterman from the perspective section of the los angeles times tuesday november 1st 2022 fetterman writes for the associated press okay here's a follow-up article. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. Exit foes in Israel suggest Netanyahu may be back. Former Prime Minister and allies appear to have the lead. Final tally expected Friday by Laura King and Leela Miller. Tel Aviv. Is Bibi back? Exit polls late Tuesday from Israel's fifth national election in less than four years suggested that former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his far-right allies may have secured enough parliamentary seats barely to engineer his return as the country's leader. If borne out by the official tally, the outcome would mark the latest sea change in the political fortunes of Netanyahu. Universally known by his nickname Bibby, a polarizing but charismatic figure who was on trial for corruption and was pushed from power last year. <clears throat> the pro- prospect of a nationalist religious government led by Netanyahu 73 was alarming to many Israelis, as was the apparent ascension of far-right politician Itamar ben Gvir, a one-time fringe figure excoriated by critics for racism against Palestinians. The exit polls by Israel's three main broadcasters indicated that Ben Giver's party, Religious Zionism, would emerge as the third-largest in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Experts note that in the past, the official count has diverged from exit polls. But if the preliminary indications prove accurate, Netanyahu and his coalition partners, Religious Zionism among them, would secure at least the 61 votes necessary for a Knesset majority. A final tally is not expected until Friday. Turnout was high despite or because of wariness with political gridlock that has plagued the country for nearly four years. If reinstalled as Prime Minister, Netanyahu would be better positioned to battle the charges against him. He has repeatedly denounced prosecutors and judges as engaging in a witch hunt, galvanizing fears among proponents that he poses an ongoing threat to the rule of law and to Israel's democracy. Netanyahu's principal rival is Ya Lapid, the centrist caretaker prime minister. Neither Lapid's party, Yesh Atid, nor Netanyahu's Likud party came close to winning a parliamentary majority of, on its own, but before the election, each sought support from smaller parties from across the ideological spectrum in order to secure a governing majority the uh, president typically gives the party with the largest parliamentary representation the first chance to form coalition with smaller parties a process that can end in deadlock or drag on over a period of weeks the fragile opposition coalition behind netanyahu's dramatic 2021 ouster dissolved earlier this year And the latest election, like previous ones, was viewed as a referendum on him. His conservative backers support increased control over daily life by religious authorities and a hardline stance toward the Palestinians. Plessner, president of the Israel Democracy Institute, said the prospective new coalition would seek to politicize the judiciary and weaken the checks and balances that exist between the branches of government and serve as fundamental components of Israeli democracy. Forming a new government and holding it together would be a challenge even for Netanyahu, who is known as a political survivor. Heading into this election, he pivoted to a full-on embrace of far-right figures, including Ben Giver, the one-time protege of a racist rabbi who was assassinated in the 1990s, and Beze- Bezalel <clears throat> Smotrich, whose extreme views have become increasingly part of the Israeli political mainstream. Ben Giver is known for inflammatory gestures such as, a, such as brandishing a handgun in a Jerusalem neighborhood that had seen years of angry Palestinian protests and urging police to use lethal force against stone-throwing demonstrators. If his party is part of the winning coalition, he is expected to try to become head of the ministry that oversees the police. Despite the controversy that has surrounded Netanyahu for years, he has commanded an intense, loyal base of support, even after being put on trial for fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes. He has vehemently denied any wrongdoing. The exit polls were welcome news for Yadida Furman, a twenty four year old who voted in Ranana, near Tel Aviv, casting his ballot for Ben Diver's party. "I think this shows that the public in Israel is looking for a leadership that will restore security to the streets, and a leadership that preserves and respects Israel's Jewish tradition," Furman said. Benjamin Brown, a professor of Jewish thought at Hebrew University, said Netanyahu's alliances affirms his willingness to make whatever compromises he deems necessary to return to power. Politicians seek allies when they didn't want to have them in the first place, but recognize that this is the way they try to form a coalition, he said. Netanyahu presided over collapsed Israeli-Palestinian peace talks in 2014 and the 11-day battle between Israel and Hamas a Palestinian militant group that rules over Gaza, in May 2021, they killed at least 230 Palestinians and at least 12 Israelis. Its government in 2018 enacted a law proclaiming that the right of national self-determination in Israel is unique to Jews and downgrading the status of the Arabic language. The A-Party Alliance that in 2021 ousted Netanyahu, who had refused to resign, Amid the corruption allegations, had little in common besides a desire to get rid of him. After defections cost the coalition uh, the seats it needed to survive, new elections were called, opening the door to a comeback by Netanyahu, the country's longest-serving prime minister. When Netanyahu's legal problems caught up with him, resulting in court proceedings, some erstwhile allies refused to sit in his coalition. After previous elections, that helped stymie his efforts to secure a Knesset majority. Now, some of those he is expected uh, he is expected to bring into his coalition have indicated that they will seek to change the legal code in ways that could help him avoid conviction or jail time. That was exit polls in Israel suggest Net Yahoo may be back. By Laura King and Leela Miller from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. King reported from Washington and Miller from Tel Aviv. And another follow-up article from the Los Angeles Times Thursday, November 3, 2022. A yahoo combat could royal ties with U.S. Arab states. By Lila Miller, Nabi Bulos and Tracy Wilkinson. Ranana Israel. In the waning, waning days of his most recent stint as Israel's Prime Minister just over a year ago, Benjamin Netanyahu made no secret for his disdain for President Biden. Struggling to save his own political neck, Netanyahu suggested Biden was weak on some of Israel's most formidable enemies, Iran and the Palestinian militant group Hamas, and pledged to defy a Democrat-led Washington if necessary. On Wednesday, he emerged as the likely choice for the top government position in Israel once again after the country's fifth election in four years. His right-wing bloc, which includes ultra-Orthodox and far-right nationalists, appear to take a solid majority in the Knesset or parliament. Today we won a sweeping vote of confidence, Netanyahu declared early Wednesday to cheering supporters from his Likud party, many chanting Bibi, King of Israel, using his familiar nickname. The results, if they hold, are sure to complicate Israel's relationship with the United States. Uh, uh, Already having made history, as the longest-serving prime minister and currently on trial for corruption, Netanyahu was famously fond of Biden's predecessor, President Trump. Trump, in turn, showered Netanyahu with praise and favors, including the reversal of decades-old U.S. policy, but moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And the alliance of admiration pushed Israel closer to the GOP camp and what has always been a bipartisan relationship. This has to complicate the ties with the U.S. administration, said Shira Ephraim, research director for the U.S.-based Israeli Israel Policy Forum. She noted that Biden and Netanyahu have a long personal friendship but an equally long list of disagreements. The problems, she said, will be rooted in both persona and policies, from expansion of settlements uh, in the occupied West Bank to the diminishing of democracy and civil rights. Make no mistake, this is a vulnerable time for Israel, said Eric H. Yofi, an American rabbi and former president of the Union for Reform Judaism, writing Wednesday in the Haaretz newspaper. He and others singled out Net Yahoo's alliance with Itamar Ben Giver, a far-right Knesset member known for anti-Arab rhetoric and proposals to deport Arabs from Israel. Ben Giver's emergence as a significant political uh, player in Israel would undermine the country's public standing in America and strength, strength, then, strengthen Israel's enemies and offend its friends, Yofi said. For now, U.S. officials are remaining guarded in their public statements, noting the results are not expected to be final until Friday, praising the large turnout in Tuesday's vote and pledging to work with any Israeli government on our shared interests and values. It could take weeks of negotiations for the next Israeli government to take shape. U.S. Uh, State Department spokesperson Ned Price said it was premature to comment on any political potential government, but government member or policy. However, he described a vision of government that Netanyahu's critics say is profoundly at odds with much of the rhetoric that came out of the political campaign by Netanyahu and his allies. We hope that all Israeli government officials will continue to share the values of an open democratic society, including tolerance and respect for all in civil society, particularly for minority groups, Price said. He reiterated the U.S. commitment to a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the establishment of an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel, and equal measures of secure freedom, justice, and prosperity for Israelis and Palestinians alike. In addition to a prickly relationship with the Biden government, a Netanyahu-led coalition would probably have little interest in negotiations with the Palestinians over land and independence and could also halt the expansion of Israel's new ties with Arab Gulf states. Normalization, in fact, began under Netanyahu, who negotiated the so-called Abraham Accords, which opened the way for trade and business opportunities. The current Israeli government had hoped to form a military alliance with some of those former enemy countries. But experts say say, uh, that such an initiative, that some have called a Mideast NATO, would probably be off the table if Netanyahu's government is seen as too radical or anti-Arab. Some Persian Gulf state governments have insisted, have insisted that deepening relations would, be, would help the Palestinians cause a justification that Netanyahu's hardened stance seriously undermines. The fact that his coalition is so right-wing is not a source of comfort to Gulf monarchies, said Rabi Barakat, an analyst at American University of Beirut. The emirates Saudi Arabia, they're using their soft power to instill this idea that normalization is where a better figure lies for the region. With Net Yahu, there will be complications. Some of Israel's geographically closer neighbors are also girding themselves for what promises to be a stormy period ahead. One particularly dedicated case is Lebanon. The two countries have been at war for years but still managed to delineate their respective maritime borders in a landmark U.S. broker deal that included Israeli Prime Minister Yar Lapid and then Lebanese President Michael Aoun. Signed last month, it also received the tacit blessing of Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shiite army, group, and political party that plays a dominant role in Lebanon's politics that went to war with Israel in 2006. In the run-up to the election, Netanyahu excoriated the agreement, saying that it was illegal and that if elected, he, w- he would work to neutralize it. Jordan, too, was unlikely to welcome the return of a pugnacious leader whose previous tenure was marked by a nadir in the the two nations' longstanding cooperation over energy, water, and the Al-Aquiza Mosque in Jerusalem's Old City, Islam's third holiest site, of which the kingdom has custodial rights. Jordan has a sizable population of Palestinian refugees and staunchly advocates a two-state solution. Relations had rapidly improved after Netanyahu's ouster, with Lapid playing a rare, paying a rare visit in July to Jordan's king, Abdullah II, in Amman. But Marwan Muasher, a former Jordanian foreign minister who served as ambassador to Israel in the 1990s, said the return of a right-wing government that included racist elements would require a serious evaluation of ties. This is obviously a government that isn't serious at all about the peace process and certainly does not intend to engage in any sort of negotiations, let alone withdraw from occupied territory and will treat Arabs under occupation and even Arab citizens of Israel in a racist manner, he said. The election of this government will poison the atmosphere in the region, Muasher said. Gideon Rahat, a senior fellow at the Jerusalem-based Israel Democracy Institute, said Israel and the U.S. might also butt heads over perceived threats to Israel's democracy. Netanyahu's coalition partners have called for reforms that would weaken the independence of the judiciary by blocking the Israeli uh, Supreme Court's ability to undo the work of parliament by striking down laws. Leaders from the Netanyahu Allied Religious Zionism Faction, which is led by Ben Giver, have also voiced support for striking striking from the penal code the fraud and breach of trust offense that Netanyahu faces in his corruption trial, saying that it's been used to target politicians. If democracy in Israel deteriorates, the U.S. may not be happy about it, Rashad said in his corruption trial. Netanyahu stands accused of using his position to promote regulations that financially benefit a media company in exchange for favorable news coverage. He has maintained his innocence. Ibrahim Dalasha, the director of the Palestinian political research group Horizon Center in the West Bank city of Ramallah, said that Netanyahu's position's possible return to power leaves Palestinians with little hope for peace negotiations. It's a deja vu to the political stalemate under Netanyahu," he said. Israeli voter Abraham Granite, a retired 85-year-old army colonel who lives in the central city of Ranana, was more optimistic. He said he wasn't worried about relations between the U.S. and Israel, pointing to how the countries have been strong allies for decades. The relationship between Israel and the U.S. generally is not dependent on who is prime minister, he said. But granite who voted for the religious zionism faction said he would implore biden to support israeli policy to build more settlements in the occupied west bank where he has two children and seven grandchildren living in one such settlement the biden administration uh, considers the settlements an impediment to peace and they are considered illegal by much of the world that was a Netanyahu comeback could royal ties with u.s arab states by Leela miller Anabi Boulos and Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, November 3, 2022. Miller report, reported from Ranana, Bulosh from Beirut, and Wilkinson from Washington. Alright, and here's one final article for now. From the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 4, 2022. Israel's Embrace of Illiberalism. Netanyahu's return to power with a coalition of racists is appalling, but the problem runs much deeper. By David N. Myers and Daniel Sokotch. The the apparent return of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu to power in Israel is a gut punch to people concerned about the state of democracy and the rule of law in the world. Uh, Netanyahu has been a key pillar in the global movement of illiberal leaders who have taken control and altered the rules of the democratic game, including in Turkey, Hungary, and the United States in the Trump era. During his 12 years in power from 2009 to 2021, Netanyahu lashed out at the media and political enemies, consistently attacked the, uh, the Israeli judiciary while under indictment and on trial, and promoted a version of... Majoritarianism intended to enshrine Jewish supremacy as a constitutional principle. And now, in his new term as Prime Minister, he will sit in a government with Etamir ben Giver, the avowed disciple of the hate-filled racist Meyer Kah- uh, Kahane and Bezalel Smotrich, a rabidly anti-LGBTQ rabble-rouser. The fact that Netanyahu together with these allies will form a government with as many as 65 seats in the Knesset represents not an aberration aberration but the uh, but the clear will of the but the clear will of the people. A majority of Israel's Jewish population about 62% identifies as right wing which is a sharp increase from 46% in 2019. Especially depressing is that young Israeli Jews 70% are more right-wing than older Israeli Jews. ben gvir received a rapturous reception from young Israeli Jews across the country, including in reliably liberal Tel Aviv. And This was not the result of external forces such as a war or a third intifada. Instead, it reflects a sustained political effort to promote a doctrine of Jewish supremacy and large... Larger global right leaning populist trends. In Israel, and as in many countries around the world, the very idea of Western style liberal democracy is under assault by those who, like Viktor Orban in Hungary, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, Narendra Modi in India, Giorgia Meloni in Italy, and of course, Donald Trump championed the idea of illiberal democracy in which the majority rules with little or no consideration for the rights of minorities or the rule of law. It is easy to despair in the face of the success of these politicians and their many millions of supporters. Too many in the U.S. who have committed much time and effort to supporting a progressive vision of Israel. This is a day of reckoning. Israel is not what our parents and grandparents imagined it could be, a workable balance of a haven for Jews and an enlightened egalitarian society. The problem was not born with the latest election nor the Netanyahu era more generally. It runs much deeper. Israel has maintained an illegal and immoral occupation of Palestinian land since 1967 and it has never reconciled its self-definition as a Jewish state with its professed desire to offer full equality to all its citizens, especially its large Arab minority, which makes up a fifth of the population. As an antidote to paralysis, it is important to recognize that this week's election results, like all election results, are transitory. A snapshot in time, not a final destination. Even in the case Even in the Israeli case, it turns out that just shy of 50% voted against the Netanyahu coalition. Despite the growing right-wing tendencies of Israeli Jews, the outcome could well have been different had a number of small parties on the left joined forces to pass the minimum threshold of votes. But the path forward will require a new approach to Israeli politics, and in fact a new vision of Israel, one that rests on the principle of arab jewish partnership the israel of the future must turn away from the ugly face of jewish supremacy that is ascendant today this means that although israel can and should remain a homeland for jews it must not be as the 2019 nation state law declared exclusively so it also must be a homeland for palestinians who have lived in the land for centuries in addition it must acknowledge the searing pain of displacement and exile that Israel's establishment brought upon Palestinians in 1948 as well as the ongoing dehumanization of the occupation that began in 1967. And it must commit to full political, social, and economic enfranchisement of Arab citizens of the country. It is almost forgotten that the last government formed in israel last year included an arab party as part of the coalition the first time an independent arab party did so in Israeli his- israel's history this kind of event must become the norm rather than the exception this would require crafting out of the uh, detritus of the collapsed left and center left in israel a new political partnership based on based not on the self-interest of jews or arabs but the shared future for both this is an ideal that all that all who care about the well-being of that sacred and cursed land should support in the meantime we can no longer sugarcoat an unacceptable reality Jews in this country, and particularly Jewish communal leaders, should refuse to meet with Israeli politicians who are unabashed racists. And we should no longer tolerate or provide a blank check to the illegal settlement project and the occupation that many observers have called an Israeli version of apartheid. Just as friends don't let friends drive drunk, so we must tell our Israeli friends and cousins that enough is enough. We cannot stand idly by when the state continues to deprive Palestinians of its full rights, nor when its leaders take aim at leftist, LGBTQ people, and African asylum seekers, all in violation of the very ideal of liberty, justice, and peace declared in Israel's proclamation of independence. That was Israel's Embrace of Illiberalism, by David N. Myers and Daniel Sokach, from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 4, 2022. David N. Myers teaches Jewish history at UCLA and is president of the New Israel Fund. Daniel Sokach is the CEO of the New Israel Fund. All right, let's depart Israel for now. And we go to this one from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. CBS, LAPD, Captain Shielded Moonves. New York Attorney General reveals cover-up of alleged sexual assault by firm's then-CEO by Meg James. The New York Attorney General's office released a sweeping report Wednesday that detailed an elaborate cover-up at the highest level of CBS in late 2017 and 2018 to try to contain allegations of sexual harassment by former chief Leslie Moonves. In uh, the report comes 5 years after a Los Angeles Police Department captain tipped off CBS executives telling them a woman had come to the department's Hollywood station to report that Moonves had allegedly assaulted her in the 1980s. The LAPD captain, whose role was not previously revealed, secretly provided Moonves and CBS executives with status updates on the LAPD's investigation for months, as well as personal details about the alleged accuser, the Attorney General's office said. The captain slipped CBS a copy of the accuser's report and top CBS executives then began investigating the victim's personal circumstances and that of her uh, family, the report said. The police captain was friendly with CBS executives because he had been part of Moonvest's security detail for the Grammy Awards for several years, according to the document. Both sides sought to downplay the gravity of the woman's complaint, which came as the hashtag MeToo movement was reaching a fever pitch. CBS executives were assured by the captain that LAPD implemented not, uh, controls to prevent news of the police report from leaking to the press, the document said. Hopefully, we can kill media from PD, then figure uh, what complainant number one wants, Moonves wrote the captain and a CBS assistant in one text message obtained by the attorney general. More than eight months went by before uh, the public became aware of the allegations against Moonves. CBS and its senior leadership knew about the multiple allegations of sexual assault made against Mr. Moonves and intentionally concealed those allegations from regulators, shareholders, and the public for months, according to a statement from New York Attorney General Letitia James's office. James announced that CBS and Moonves would pay 30 point five million dollars with much of the pay going to CBS's shareholders. Los Angeles Police Chief Michael Moore told the Times that his department only recently became aware of the allegations involving a ranking officer. The department later identified the officer as Commander Corey Palca, who was captain of the Hollywood station in 2017 and 2018 and has since retired. What's more appalling is that the alleged breach of trust of a victim of sexual assault who was among the most vulnerable by a member of the LAPD," Morse said. This erodes the public trust and is not reflective of our values as an organization. Captain Kelly Munoz, an LAPD spokeswoman, said the department was fully cooperating with the New York and California Attorney General's offices and also initiated an internal investigation. The New York Attorney General's uh, report contained other findings, including how CBS's former chief communications officer, Gil Schwartz, who has since died, sold more than 160,000 shares of CBS in June 2018 as the company tried to contain the explosive allegations. Schwartz sold the stock with CBS's approval, netting more than $8.8 million, knowing that damaging information could come out, and it did, a few weeks later. The attorney general's report also said Moonves allegedly misled investigators about the scope of the sexual harassment uncovered at CBS, information that was damaging to CBS's stock. Moonves will be barred from serving as an executive or corporate officer at a public company that does that does business in New York for five years unless he obtains written approval from James's office. Moonves, through a spokesman, declined to comment. Moonves has denied the allegations of sexual harassment. Paramount Global separately announced that it it and Moonves had agreed to pay the New York Attorney General's Office $9.75 million to resolve lingering shareholder claims over its handling of past allegations of sexual harassment. Moonves will contribute $2.5 million of that amount. The company also said its insurance provider would resolve a separate $14.75 $14.75 million class-action lawsuit brought by shareholders. CBS and Leslie Moonves' attempts to silence victims, lie to the public, and mislead investors can only be described as reprehensible, James said. As a publicly traded company, CBS failed at its most basic duty to be honest and transparent with the public and investors. After trying to bury the truth to protect their fortunes, today, CBS and Leslie Moonves are paying millions of dollars for their wrongdoing. The Los Angeles Times in 2018 reported on the allegations of the accuser, Phyllis Golden Gottlieb, as a key piece in CBS's high-profile investigation into the alleged misconduct of Moonves. Golden Gottlieb, who has since died, was a TV show development executive in the mid-1980s when she worked with Moonves at Lorimar Protections in Culver City. She told the Times that in a parking lot outside a restaurant, Moonves forcibly grabbed her head and slammed it into his crotch, then ejaculated into her mouth. Moonves denied the allegations and Los Angeles County prosecutors declined to bring charges because the statute of limitations had expired. The attorney general's report detailed CBS's campaign to conceal the issue, all while publicly asserting that the company had no tolerance for sexual harassment. A week after Golden uh, Gottlieb lodged her complaint, CBS executives were grappling with reports about inappropriate behavior by morning show host Charlie Rose. Moonves approved the decision to fire Rose, telling reporters that he felt that Rose needed to go. Movis on November 25, 2017, requested an in-person meeting with the police captain. He and an underlying Ian Metros met with the captain at a restaurant and vineyard in Westlake Village to plan strategy. The police officer volunteered to uh, to come wearing a suit rather than his uniform, according to the report. Metros couldn't be reached for comment. During the meeting, uh, Moonves said that he wanted the L.A.P.D. investigation closed and discussed contacting other public officials, the prosecutor wrote. Four days later, at Variety Magazine's Innovate Summit, Moonves called hashtag MeToo a watershed movement, according to the report. It quoted Moonves as saying, "...it's important that company, that a company's culture will not allow for this." The next day, according to the report, Metros passed along a message to Moves from the LAPD captain who alerted them that another police officer would be wrapping up the report on Golden Gottlieb's complaint uh, the following week. However, it's a definite reject, no witnesses and or cooperative evidence. As the Times previously reported, members of CBS's board became aware of the allegations by Golden Gottlieb by early 2018. An outside law firm was brought in to review information about allegations and the police inquiry, but concluded that no further investigation was warranted, sources told The Times in 2018. Behind the scenes, then-CBS Vice Chair Shari Redstone, the controlling shareholder, had learned from reporters about sexual harassment allegations involving Moonves, the report said. She told another board member about reporters' pursuit of the Moonves story. Redstone began agitating for a board investigation and sweeping changes at the company. In July 2018, the New Yorker magazine published the first of several articles by investigative reporter Ron- Ronan Farrow detailing the allegations of six women who alleged Moonves' assault or harassing them. Uh, Farrow's report prompted swift action. CBS's board, hi- CBS's board hired two prominent law firms to investigate Moonves and the company's culture. The board then fired Moonves on September 9, 2018. That day, the LAPD captain em- emailed Metro uh, saying, I'm so sorry to hear this news, Ian. Sickens me. We worked so hard to try to avoid this day. The captain sent a note to Moonves two days later. I'm deeply sorry that this has happened. I will always stand with, by and pledge my allegiance to you. You have embodied leadership, class, and the highest of character through all of this. With Wednesday's revelations, CBS is trying to close a troubling chapter that destroyed Moonves' career and triggered the company's eventual merger with Viacom. We are pleased to have reached an agreement, in principle, to resolve this matter concerning events from 2018 with the New York Attorney General's office without any admission of liability or wrongdoing, a Paramount spokesman said in a statement. The New York Attorney General's inquiry was one of several investigations into how CBS handled the 2018 sexual harassment scandal. A group of shareholders also sued, alleging that the scandal was destroying the value of their holdings. New York agencies, including the New York City Commission on Human Rights and the New York County District Attorney, quickly uh, opened inquiries. The New York Attorney General's inquiry was one of several investigations into how CBS handled the 2018 sexual harassment scandal. A group of shareholders also sued, alleging that the scandal was destroying the value of their holdings. New York agencies, including the New York City Commission on Human Rights and the New York County District Attorneys, quickly opened in- inquiries. In 2018, shareholders Gene Samet and John Lentz, among others, filed class-action lawsuits in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. A judge later consolidated the lawsuit into one, with the lead plaintiff being the Construction Laborer's Pension Trust for Southern California. Investigators alleged multiple federal securities into violations, including that executives made materially false and misleading statements, and that the company failed to disclose key information to investors. The company eventually agreed to settle with the plaintiffs. That was CBS LAPD Captain Shielded Moonvest by Meg James from the Los Angeles Times Thursday, November 3, 2022. Okay, and here's a little something from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. Snyder hires bank for a possible sale of team from staff and wire reports. After repeatedly saying he would never consider giving up the football team he rooted for as a child and has owned for more than two decades, Dan Snyder and his wife, Tanya, have taken the first step towards selling the Washington Commanders. The team announced the surprising decision Wednesday at the Snider's that the Snyders hired Bank of America securities to consider potential transactions. Asked if the Snyders were considering selling part or all of the team, a spokesperson said, We are exploring all options. Retaining the investment bank's services could mean a full sale amid mounting pressure and multiple ongoing investigations or bringing on new investors more than 18 months after the Snyders bought out the previous minority owners. First indication Snyder has given that he'd ever consider selling the team. That was Snyder Hires Bank for Possible Sale of Team from Sta- Staff & Reports out of the Sports Section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday, November 3, 20. 22 here's a little entertainment news and actually a book review from the calendar section of the los angeles times monday october 31st 2022 A revealing special kind of bonkers in a new work bob dylan blends music criticism beat poetry misogyny and tirades by jody rosen what should we make of the title of bob dylan's new book the Philosophy of Modern Song is a mouthful, a phrase that puts on airs. It asserts that the book is an important work that merits a place on your loftiest library shelf, up where you keep the leather-bound, gift, the leather-bound gift-edge stuff. It has a list price worthy of an opus, $45, pretty steep for a volume that pads out more than one third of its pages with carefully curated photographs. But the title is also a wise crack, too puffed up and self important to be taken at face value. For decades, Dylan has been laying booby traps for the Dylanologists who rake through his songs and scraps seeking clues to the riddle of Bob. The book title feels like a joke at their expense and maybe a jibe at the pointy heads in Stockholm who awarded him the 2016 Nobel Prize in Literature. In any case, philosophy is a useful term, vague and baggy enough to accommodate the mix of music criticism, beat poetry, uh, wolverine snarls, and Lear on the, on the heath tirades that comprise its 66 chapters on 66 songs. Readers of Dylan have encountered writing in this vein before. There is the mediation on the brecht Wheel song, Pirate Jenny, in his 2004 memoir, Chronicles Volume 1, and the muscle-themed reveries scattered through his upper 60s prose poetry experiment, Tarantula. The closest model may be the monologues he delivered on Theme Time Radio Hour, the Sirius XM show he hosted from 2006 to 2009. But the philosophy of modern song has its own wild flavor. It is, for better and alas worse, a special kind of bonkers. It isn't a book that takes time to clear its throat. Dylan offers no introduction or contextualiz- t- contextualizing chitchat hot-running straight into an essay on Detroit City, a 1963 hit by country singer Bobby Bear. In this song, you're the prodigal son, he writes. That second-person per, uh, pro- pronoun is noteworthy, a key to the author's ideas, his philosophy, if you insist, about how songs work. Knowing a singer's life story doesn't particularly help you understanding your understanding of a song, Dylan writes. It's what a song makes you feel about your own life that's important. That formulation could be turned in a different direction. If you know a guy's favorite songs, you gain understanding of his life. Dylan's playlist here isn't exactly surprising, but it is revealing. There was a lot of blues and country. There's soul, Ray Charles, B- Harold Melvin, and the Blue Notes, and songs by the titans of early rock and roll, including Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, and Little Richard. Dylan's hero in his teen years—Dylan's mo- uh, mo- D- hero in his teen years. Most of us fall hard for pop music as adolescents and never quite shake the stranglehold hold these formative hits have on our consciousness. Dylan is no different. Twenty-eight songs in the book date from the 1950s. Nine were released in 1956 when Dylan turned 15. He also writes about 60s and 70s rock anthems, The Who's My Generation, The Clash's London Calling, and makes a couple of of excursions into the 80s catalog of Willie Nelson. But it's clear that Dylan's definition of modern song does not extend into the hip-hop era. He mentions Run-D.M.C., the notorious B.I.G. and Jay-Z, but doesn't delve into the music. The most recent recording he considers from 2004 is a rendition of a Stephen Foster song composed in 1849. Some of the book's most passionate passages concern the songbook of Dylan's parents' generation. Dylan did as much as anybody to dislodge that music from the center of American life, but in the last two decades he has reclaimed and recontextualized it. On albums like *Love and Theft* (2001), *Modern Times* (2006), and his recent sequence of Sinatra tribute records, Dylan sounds like a grizzled version of a 1930s balladeer. Those recordings make a case against folk purism, arguing that the old pop standards are as powerful and mysterious as a field, as a field holier or 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 singer-songwriter's confession. In a chapter on Perry Como's 1951 recording of the Tin Pan Alley War uh, war Horse Without a a Song, Dylan hails Como, often dismissed as milquetoast and champions music interpretation over auteurism. Perry Como lived in every moment of every song he sang. He didn't have to write a song to do it. What more could you want from an artist? As a work of prose, the philosophy of modern song is relentless. It rips snorts along, charging from song to song, idea to idea. Dylan can write what journalists call a great lead, L D L E a first sentence that denotates like a hand grenade. This song speaks new speak. This song is the grinning skull. In this song, the fire's gone out and your life is missing. Sometimes he renders straightforward judgments, weighing the beauty of, moon, of blue moon with its melody right out of Debussy, or exulting in Hank Williams's "Your Cheatin' Heart," a song that is perfectly played and sung with the exact correction intensity. Exact correct intensity. Hints of professional rivalry and one-upsmanship creep in. In a chapter on Elvis Costello's Pump It Up, Dylan correctly notes its debt to own subterranean homesick blues and delivers a sly double diss aimed at Costello and other rock stars. At the point of Pump It Up, Costello obviously had been listening to Springsteen too much. More often though, Dylan is in a different dimension altogether, cruising the sp- uh, spacescape of his imagination. For Dylan, songs aren't just artworks to be analyzed and explicit. They're visions that beget visions, prompts for his own madcap and macabre yarn-spinning. His essay on The Temptations' Ball of Confusion uh, paints scenes of societal collapse. Blood running in the streets, earthquakes on the next block, women getting raped on the corner, spaceships taking off, nothing fastened down. The entry on Uncle Dave Macon's Keep My Skillet Good and Greasy 1924 is an extended culinary riff, a metaphor that keeps mutating until it's ordered everything on the menu. You're a long john silver and you've got snakes in your boots, fortune cookies and glazed donuts and you're drinking iced coffee, eating dried beef and picnic ham, swallowing whole mouthfuls of Boston cream pie. This song melts everything down, browns it up, and deep-fries it. It'll milk the cow till it gives blood. What does all this add up to? Not quite a philosophy of modern song, or at least not a coherent one. But coherence isn't what you want from Dylan. What you want is to watch songs ping-pong around his brain. You want a close encounter with his mind. Unfortunately, that same month is the storehouse for some extremely dark and disturbing ideas about, to use the retrograde term Dylan himself employs, the opposite sex. You have to plow through 46 chapters before finding a song by a female artist, shares Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves. There are only four songs by women in the book. That's Dylan's prerogative, of course. He's writing about his record collection, not mine or yours. Yet women loom large in his consciousness and are omnipresent in his pages, appearing in such monstrous form, evoking in language so marinated in misogyny that reading the, uh, this book, I began to feel like a therapist, sneaking glances at my watch while cracking pot, while the crackpot on the, cor- on the couch blurts one creepy fantasy after another. The women we meet in Dylan's essays include a she-goat. A crazy bitch, a gold-digging showgirl, full-skirted in a cocktail dress, and a hot-blooded, sex-starved wench. Dylan describes women as pug-nosed, grim-faced, and short on looks, bare-breasted, blue-veined, short, powerful, and ugly, and foul-tasting. Sometimes he sounds like a garden-variety sexist jerk. Her voice gets on your nerves, the low drone, the squeaking sounds but he also spews bile from the murkiest depths of the male id. He refers to the uh, labia mahora as a steel trap. He writes of a woman who feeds on the entrails of your victims, and if you pull back her skin, you'll see the head of an animal. Dylan's essay on the eagle's witchy woman occasions a rant about the woman from the global village of nowhere destroyer of cultures, traditions, entities, and deities. Elsewhere, he gives voice to what can only be called a psychosexual murder fantasy. You want to maim and mangle her. You want to see her in in agony, and you want to blow this whole thing up until it's swollen, where you'll run your hands all over and squeeze it till it collapses. Then there's Johnny Taylor's Cheaper to to Keeper, a funny soul-blue song about divorce that sends Dylan into a diatribe about polygamy. It's nobody's business how many wives a man has, but the screws already get tightened from all sides. Women's rights crusaders and women's lib lobbyists take turns putting man back on his heels until he is pinned behind the eight ball dodging the shrapnel from the glass ceiling. What downtrodden woman with no future battered around by whims of a cruel society, wouldn't be better off as one of a rich man's wives taking care of property rather than friendless on the street depending on government stamps? It's a bummer, to put it mildly, to find a Nobel laureate and more to the point, the writer of Tangled Up in Blue mixing metaphors and spouting nonsense like an elderly uncle whose bulk emails links to Fox News segments. In one of the book's pithier moments, Dylan makes the obvious but important point that pop lyrics, which may seem so slight when read, are written for the ear and not for the eye. It's when those words are set to music and dramatized by a singer of skill and sympathy that the magical transmutation occurs. Dylan is a brilliant songwriter, of course. The truth is he's a better singer, a master vocal stylist, Whose performances speak to the deep, to the deeps of human emotion, even when they carry unseemly, uh, at, unseemly attitudes and ideas. But when his words just sit there between hard covers on stark white page, on a stark white page, the discordant notes are hard to bear. That was a revealing special kind of bonkers by Jody Rosen. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 31st, 2022. It's called The Philosophy of Modern Song by Bob Dylan from Simon & Schuster Publishing. 352 pages, pages cost $45. All right, here's a little something from iloveclassicrock.com. And this is called The Younger Generation is Missing Out T-Rex's 20th Century Boy. Author unknown and uh, date is unknown. Mark Bolan on guitar and vocals guided T-Rex, shortcut for Tyrannosaurus Rex, to become the dominant force in glam rock. The underlying sexuality of early rock and roll was appropriated by T-Rex, who also incorporated unclean, simplistic grooves and heavy, warped guitars into their sound. There was also a prevailing folky, hippie spirituality, which was most evident in the band's ballads. Bolan wrote hits that were mostly classics by today's standards. And what's not to like about it? Bolin's creativity shined through the albums he released with the group and even with the underrated T-Rex songs, the musician did his best to give pride in what it's like to be a genius in songwriting. One underrated song worth noting would be T-Rex's 20th Century Boy, a standalone single. Recorder for 20th Century Boy, uh, Boy began on December 3rd, 1972, at Toshiba Recording Studios in Tokyo, Japan. Once T-Rex had finished their tour, they went back to England to record the album Tanks, T-A-N-X, which the single wasn't included until the 1985 reissue. The song's backing vocals, hand claps, acoustic guitar, and saxophones were all added at this point. Mark Boland claims that the song's lyrics are derived from the words of famous people like Muhammad Ali. This is seen in the use of the phrase, Sting Like a Bee, which was originally used in one of Ali's speeches in 1969. Moreover, the song rose to the charts again when it was featured in the 1991 Levi's commercial with Brad Pitt. You can watch the band's performance in the German TV show Musikladen back in 1973. That was the younger generation is missing out. T Rex's 20th Century Boy, author unknown, date unknown, from the website iloveclassicrock.com Alright, so here's something from Forward, Jewish independent nonprofit, and uh, this is called Off the Wall What the Jewish Men Slurred in Leaked LA City Council Recording Has to Say About It. I've been doing this a long time since former State Assembly member Richard Katz. But I've never seen anything quite like this before. By Louis Keene, October 16, 2022. The most jarring remarks in a leaked audio conversation among three Los Angeles City Council members and a local labor leader target, uh, target a black child, the son of a white council ma- uh, member accused of using the boy as a political prop. But the recording released a week ago also slurs other groups, including Jews. I'm sure Katz and his crew have an agenda. Los Angeles County Federation labor head Ron Herrera said in the leaked recording of a meeting with City Council members last year. Los Judios cut their deal with South LA, then Council President Nury Martinez replied, using the Spanish words for Jews, they're going to screw over everyone else. Herrera was referring to Richard Katz, a Jewish former California State Assembly member who served on LA's redistricting commission last year. Cat 72, was appointed to the role by Bob Blumenfield, the city's third district council member, who was also Jewish. Blumenfield's district did not change much in the redistricting. The tape has thrown the city into political turmoil. Martinez and Herrera have resigned, though council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon have so far ignored calls to follow suit from their colleagues, including indignant Angelenos, both mayoral candidates, and President Joe Biden. Katz, who, as an assembly member, helped create the Los Angeles Metropolitan Transportation Authority, and now owns a consulting practice that focuses on transportation, spoke to the forward about anti-Semitism in politics, being caught in the crossfire in a major political moment, and what he wants to see changed in city politics. The interview has been edited for length and clarity. Question. How did you react to hearing the recording? Answer. It was just so shocking, startling, off the wall. Stuff you can't make up. There are a couple of hours of disbelief because it's so outside the norm. I don't know how you make sense of stuff that in some ways is irrational or just racist and bigoted. You You get a pretty thick skin in politics. I've been doing this a long time, but I've never seen anything quite like this before. And it makes you stop and think, particularly because we're in Los Angeles. We're not in Alabama, Arkansas, or Texas, and we'd like to think things are different here. It's a reminder that things may be different in a lot of ways, but there's still people who are the same. Have you ever... Question. Have you ever had any relationship with the people on the recording prior? Answer. Well, I know them all, but Gil Cedilla I've known going back 40 years. I haven't talked to any of the four since then. Question. Have you experienced anti-Semitism in your political career before? Answer. In some forms... When I was in the legislature, there was an assemblywoman somewhere from out in the high desert area who, in a committee hearing, made a comment about how she knows how contracts are negotiated. Somebody makes a quote, and then you jew down the price. The Jewish caucus met with her and talked about it. And then she said it was just something she heard growing up. But two weeks later, her husband, who was on the Hesperia City Council, said the exact same thing. So every once in a while, you come across things like that. Question. Has anyone reached out to you since the recording became public? Answer. Luz Rivas, who represents my district in the assembly, reached out the other day just to touch base and see how it was doing. There's a couple of people like that who have reached out, but I think part of it is the anti-Semitism was not quite as overt as some of those other comments in there. Question. Martina said, Los Judios cut their deal with South LA. They're going to screw everybody else. What should people make of this? Answer. She's wrong. There was no deal, and there was no Jewish part of the deal or African American part of the deal. The commission that I was on, the Public Commission, took the Voting Rights Act very seriously. I'm not a lawyer, but I would guess that if any judge listened to that tape, they would come to the conclusion that it's a privacy case, a prima, a prima facie case, that they violated the Voting Rights Act just in that meeting. The whole thing was designed to maintain their power and to identify people uh, they thought were threats to that power. And I don't know if they thought it was smarter or easier to identify people by ethnicity or religion rather than geographic area, but that's what they did. Question: What would you like to see happen now to help repair the damage that's been done to public trust in general and to the L.A. Jewish community in particular? Answer: At a minimum, I think all four people need to resign. I also think, though, that it underscores the need for the committees to spend more time together. Going back to when Tom Bradley was mayor, there was an African-American Jewish dialogue that took place after the Watts riots. And then, and then later on, as other things happened in the city, there were ongoing Jewish-African-American dialogues, Jewish-Latino dialogues, and Jewish dialogues with Asian-American and Pacific Islander community. I think the those are very instructive. The only way to get past stuff like this is to know who your neighbors are, and understand and respect them. Passing a resolution saying that we're going to be nice to each other doesn't really make it happen. There are deep divisions, and there's a, lot, there's a lot of mistrust, and we can't get through it playing A against B or D off against C. This city has tremendous potential, and we like to think of ourselves as a multiracial, multicultural city of the 21st century. Yet right below the surface, there are a lot of problems and it's reflected in unemployment, views of policing, and day-to-day problems that people are dealing with. There's economic disparity, a shrinking middle class, and uh, the growth of the 1% and folks at the poverty level. And that's not an acceptable future for us. That was Off the Wall, What the Jewish men's Slurred in a Leaked LA City Council Recording Has to Say About It, by Lewis Kean from Forward, The Forward, uh, for October 16, 2022. And Lewis Keene is a staff reporter at The Forward covering religion, sports, and the West Coast. He writes the weekly California briefing. Okay, so now let's start reading some articles from the Jewish Journal for November 4th through the 10th, 2022. And we start with the editor's notes section using free speech to kill free speech by David Suisa. I have this terrible habit of complaining about something and then immediately catching myself to say, but I'm not complaining. Of course I know I'm complaining, I just don't want to be seen as a complainer. I find the act of complaining too passive and unproductive. I much prefer the exhilaration of problem solving. That idea was on my mind when I read about an open revolt at Penguin Random House. Hundreds of staffers signed an open letter calling to act Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett's $2 million book deal because she voted to overturn Roe vs. Wade. The dissenters surely enjoyed their own freedom to attack someone else's book and call for its cancellation. But because they abhor Barrett's views on a crucial issue, they didn't grant her that freedom. Free speech for them, in other words, but not for her. But here's where it gets interesting. In an outburst of sheer chutzpah, the signatories claim uh, to care deeply about freedom of speech. Evidently, just as I want to complain without looking like a complainer, they want to kill speech without looking like speech killers. This is not just a book that we disagree with as we are not calling for censorship, the dissenters claim. Many of us work daily with books we find disagreeable to our personal politics. Rather, this is a case where a corporation has privately funded that destruction of human rights with obscene profits. Notice the clever diversion. They're not fighting fighting free speech. They're really fighting out-of-control capitalism and the destruction of human rights. It's as if they realize that free speech is so ingrained in the American culture that they need something even more epic to kill it, like the protection of an inalienable human right. Even for a free speech junkie like myself, that makes me do a double-take. How can I not want to protect an inalienable human right? That phrase is so intoxicating it makes me forget momentarily the aphrodisiac of free speech that defines our liberty. Indeed, describing abortion as an inalienable right frames the issue as an open and shut case, unworthy of any argument, on the same level as something unequivocal like freedom from slavery. The issue of abortion, of course, is one of the most delicate and explosive in our society. But one thing it is not is is unanimous. According to a recent Associated Press NORC poll, 61% of Americans believe abortion should be legal during the first trimester, but only 34% in the second trimester and 19% in the third. More than half of the country then doesn't see abortion after the first trimester as an inalienable right. That's far from unreasonable. The decision to overturn Roe v. Wade may be utterly repulsive to many, but it was based on an interpretation of the Constitution that believes the issue of abortion belongs in state legislatures. Even the late liberal icon Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had misgivings about Roe v. Wade. My criticism of Roe is that it seems to have stopped the momentum on the side of change, Ginsburg said in 2013 at a conference in Chicago. She would have preferred that abortion rights be secured more gradually in a process that included state legislatures and the courts. But even if we grant that Justice Barrett's views of Roe is wrong and deeply offensive, the real issue is whether a publisher should censor itself out of fear of offending people. They're more likely to do so if they face extremist accusations, such as undermining inalienable rights or instilling danger. When the New York Times uh, fired an editor after he approved a column by Senator Tom Cotton on the potential use of the National Guard to put down violent rioting, they caved to employees who claimed the editorial made them feel unsafe. It had to, it's hard to argue against things like safety or inalienable rights. But the minute we allow the use of free speech to kill speech, we go down a very slippery slope. One person's unsafe is another's provocative. One person's inalienable is another's controversial. The Times ended up shamefully apologizing for for simply exercising its right to free speech. It was one of the low points in American journalism. Will Random House also cave? I wouldn't be shocked if they do, but I really hope they don't. If there is one industry in America that must champion open debate and free speech in all of its uh, messiness and glory, it must be the publishing industry. What kind of a world would we live in when publishers are afraid to publish something that may offend some fragile partisans, employees, or otherwise? It won't be an open and enlightened one, that's for sure. And yes, I'm complaining. That was Using Free Speech to Kill Free Speech by David Suisa from the Editor's Notes section. Alright, we go to the Columnist section. This is called Kanye West, The Great Jewish Unifier by Tabby Raphael. In the weeks since news of megastar Kanye West's anti-Semitism has dominated the headlines, I've learned a number of lessons. First, I've been reminded that wealth doesn't guarantee health. According to Forbes, West's deal with German apparel giant Adidas was worth $1.4 billion, rendering his former net worth before Adidas dropped him at $2 billion. Like many, I believe that West suffers from mental health challenges. But how is it possible that someone with billions for hundreds of millions of dollars still can access adequate mental health care? No, wealth does not guarantee health, whether mental or physical. Sometimes it's up to the individual's own choices. But there's something else. Wealth is not, also not a guarantee of an enlightened mind bigotry, it seems, doesn't discriminate based on class. And sometimes the wealthier the person, the more he or she believes in the myth of immunity. Case in point, before Adidas cut ties with West last week, he declared the following on Revolt TV's Drink Champs podcast, the thing about me and Adidas is I can literally say anti-Semitic ass and they can't drop me. I can say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Now what? Worse, It was reported last week that West, who was one of the most successful artists of all time, reportedly wanted to name his album, Yay, after Adolf Hitler. A former West executive told CNN that the rapper would praise Hitler by saying how incredible it was that he was able to accumulate so much power and would talk about all the great things he and the Nazi party achieved for the German people. There you have it. A musical powerhouse who, as of two weeks ago, had a net worth of $2 billion. He wanted to name an album after wanted to name an album after Hitler. He can't put a dollar value on the virtues of wisdom and tolerance. But in the past few weeks, I've also learned a lot about the virtues of sacrifice. MRC Entertainment, which has made a completed yes a completed documentary about West, announced that it's shelving the film. In an amazing statement that's truly refreshing in its candor and bravery, especially for Hollywood, the company's two CEOs and co-founders, as well as it's a CBO wrote. <clears throat> Kanye is a producer, sampler of music. Last week he sampled and remixed a classic tune that has charted for over 3,000 years The Lie That Jews Are Evil and Conspire to Control the World for Their Own Gain. This song was performed a cappella in the time of the pharaohs, Babylon, and Rome, uh, when acoustic with the Spanish Inquisition and Russia's Pale of Settlement, and Hitler took the song electric. Kanye has now helped mainstream it in the modern era. Incidentally, in the statement, the heads of the film and television studio also identify themselves as a Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian and demand a balanced dialogue about Israel and the Palestinians. It's not hard to imagine that the stuff at MRC had worked tirelessly on the documentary. Perhaps this was the project that would have catapulted them into stardom in documentary filmmaking filmmaking, and guaranteed future success of their other films. And still, they shelved the project. Did they mention that the film cost $2 million to make, and MRC hoped to generate distribution revenues of up to $10 million? What a sacrifice on part of MRC. But ironically, by not releasing the film, the company has still gained fame because it has made headlines worldwide And its statement set a gold standard for unapologetic repudiation of Jewish hatred. And while I'm grateful to Adidas for finally dropping west, its recent statement on the other hand made sure to note that the company would lose $246 million in net income in 2022 by cutting ties with the rapper. If that sounds like a a lot, last year Adidas earned over $24 billion. I don't know what awaits West in the coming weeks and months. Nearly everyone has cut financial ties with him, including TJ Maxx, which dropped his Yeezy clothes line. He used his name, such as Yeezus, for a high, his highly acclaimed 6th studio album and has legally changed his name to Ye. I never vouch for an anti-Semite, but still, it would be jarring to have every single door closed in your face in the course of a week. And there's a huge catch-22 to all of this. West has lost nearly all of his business ties because, among other hateful messages, he essentially told his 31 million Twitter followers that Jews control the world. Now he's persona non grata. I would not use that term canceled in his case. uh, These are millions who now now will believe that Jews actually do control the world because no one will work with West anymore. What a catch-22 indeed. But perhaps the hardest lesson I've learned in the past few weeks is this. When you're a Jew, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. On October 29, CNN ran a story with this headline, Kanye West's anti-Semitism did what his anti-blackness did not, and some people have a problem with that. The author wrote, It seemed to take West offending the Jewish community before his empire, which includes music, fashion, and tennis shoes, began to crumble. You can imagine the barrage of tweets from many others who voiced the same grievance. Yes, West should have been dropped years ago, but these arguments are a poison against Jews. Last week, West entered the Los Angeles corporate offices of Skechers unannounced and uninvited, according to the company, and was escorted off the premises after engaging in unauthorized filmmaking. I don't know where he'll turn up next, but I know one thing. If Kanye West has a nervous breakdown, it'll be blamed on the Jews. If he assaults someone or someone assaults him, it'll be blamed on the Jews. And if he hurts himself, it'll be blamed on the Jews. The fact that his business associates didn't drop him earlier is certainly bla- uh, being blamed on the Jews. As author Damon Young said in a CNN story mentioning mentioned above, uh, this must mean that anti-blackness didn't move the needle, but anti-Semitism did. God help us with such arguments. I can almost see the torch-bearing mobs as they approach us worldwide. At this point, I could make a joke that if West hurt himself, I hope he won't, all hell would break loose if the world believed that Jews killed Jesus. But everything I've mentioned above is extremely heavy, sobering, and yes, dangerous. It's a lot to take in particularly for those of us who live in Los Angeles where a group of well-known anti-Semites recently made Nazi salutes and hung a huge banner over the 405 freeway that read Kanye is right. You know, anti-Semitism poisons everyone when white supremacists convene to support black anti-Semite, a black anti-Semite. As for Jews, we must double down in two ways. First, by emitting even more Jewish pride especially with our children at home and on social media. And second, we must step up our Jewish actions, whether performing a mitzvah with extra joy and gratitude, giving a little extra to tzedakah, or learning a few lines of Torah each week. In fact, in last week's Torah portion, we learned that Noah and his family survived a cataclysmic flood by essentially staying together. Perhaps it feels as though we're struggling to stay afloat in a different kind of flood today a flood of social media-amplified anti-Semitism that leaves us feeling angry and helpless. But I believe that we can hold on, to another, uh, uh, hold on to one another as Jews. And ironically, it's Kanye West who has proven to be one of the greatest unintentional unifiers of Jews in recent history. That was Kanye West, The Great Jewish Unifier by Tabby Raphael from the Columnist Section. Tabby Raphael is an award-winning LA-based writer, speaker, and civic action activist. Follow her on Twitter, at All Alright, and also from the columnist section, this is called The Power of the Pulpit by Dan Schnur. I moved to Los Angeles in 1990, at the tail end of Tom Bradley's extended tenure as mayor. Since then, I have watched his four successors, Richard Reardon, James Hahn, Antonio Villaraigosa, and Eric Garcetti, each grapple with the most essential and frustrating aspect of that office, The utter lack of power possessed by the mayor of Los Angeles. That is an exaggeration. LA's top elected officeholder does appoint large numbers of city commissioners and other senior local government employees and maintains a significant influence over the municipal budget. But the city's founders deliberately set up a weak mayor system of government that distributes responsibility to many different stakeholders. So mayors here have little less statutory authority uh, than their colleagues in most other most of the nation's other largest cities. A successful L.A. leader's greatest power instead comes from their effective use of the public uh, uh, platform that comes with their office to educate, motivate, and leverage voters' sentiment in support of their goals. That backing can uh, then pressure the City Council, the county supervisors, and the region's congressional and legislative delegations, but it requires the skill to commandeer the media's cameras and microphones to reach the people of the city and lead them forward. Reardon and Villaraigosa both used the bully pulpit zealously, relentlessly, and occasionally annoyingly. But their ceaseless efforts to communicate with the public ultimately paid off, and both men ultimately accomplished many of their objectives. Garcedia stopped the spotlight less constantly, but achieved his greatest success when his public presence was most notable. And Hahn struggled, never finding a way to convince Los Angeles voters or their platoons of elected representatives to follow him. In the final days of this year's mayoral campaign, it appears that neither Karen Bass nor Rick Caruso has yet mastered the art of mass public persuasion. Both are saying the right things, emphasizing the most notable aspects of their respective biographies and laying out multiple-point plans on crime, homelessness, and other issues. But neither had broken through to the voters in a compelling or captivating way, even at a time when the city thirsts for a new leadership and anguishes over how to move forward. This is not intended as a criticism of either candidate. Both have accomplished admirable success in their careers and both have the potential to be excellent mayors, albeit in extraordinarily different ways. But neither has ever been forced to rely on a public megaphone as their primary communications tool. Both are still in the process of learning that skill. Cass has compiled a commendable series of legislative accomplishments over her years in Sacramento and Washington, but she has been most successful as a behind-the-scenes negotiator rather than an out-in-front speech uh, shifter. Caruso has built an, esti- uh, est- an estimatable business empire that has often relied on developing public support, but as best work was also usually a result of one-on-one conversations and small group meetings. Both have achieved their goals just outside the public spotlight rather than at the center of it. Those are not necessarily flaws. It's entirely possible that one of them will be able to pressure reluctant council members to support their agendas in less demonstrative ways. But doing so without the cudgel of public opinion is much more difficult. It's also entirely possible that the winner will grow into this role. Reardon was painfully shy before moving from the private sector into elective office. Villargos's legislative history in Sacramento and City Hall relied more on private negotiations behind closed doors than electrifying stem-winders from the podium. Both stepped up once they took office. There is a constitutional requirement that we elect a mayor every four years, but there is no similar requirement that we elect an inspirational figure to stir our souls. I have spent this year watching Bass and Caruso trying out their public voices with mixed results. I'll cast my ballot for the candidate who I think is more likely to learn to use that bully pulpit to rally us behind their leadership, but neither of them has demonstrated that talent yet. That was The Power of the Pulpit by Dan Schnur from the columnist section. Dan Schnur is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. Join Danvers' weekly webinar, Politics in the Time of Coronavirus, www.lawac.org on Tuesdays at 5 o'clock p.m. And now let's go on to this other one from the columnist section, Satirical Semite, Queen Megan by Marcus J. Freed. The Jewish festive season is now over, and during the last few weeks, we've had royal celebrations, commemorations, and near beheadings. <clears throat> As a, Jew, I've cel- I've cele- as a Jew, I've celebrated the Shabbat Queen, as we do once a week, and proclaimed God as King on Rosh Hashanah. On Yom Kippur, I prayed to avoid the biblical punishments and not get strangled, whipped, or stoned, although there was probably no shortage of synagogue attendees in Los Angeles who were completely stoned on Yom Kippur. As an Englishman, I also mourned the passing of the Queen and the installation of the King, but then a new horror came to mind. The realization that Prince Harry is now fifth in line to the British throne, which means that there is the outside chance there could one day be a Queen consort Meghan Markle. Instead of singing God Save the Queen, we'll be singing God Save Us All. It's unlikely that this dystopian nightmare would come to pass. While nobody would be strangled or stoned in Queen Markle's marriage, many think that the ginger-haired Prince Harry is the one who is truly whipped. The UK media have unfor- been unforgiving and repeatedly violated a rabbinic commandment of calling people by nicknames even though they are not obligated to keep them. We regularly read of the Ginger Winger and me again, or the Duke and Duchess, Duchess of Netflix. After her various fibs to the British press, Pierce Morgan named her Princess Pinocchio. American friends sometimes say, I'm on Team Megan. But in the UK, that sounds as relevant as saying I'm on Team King George III. The British can be snobbish, and this isn't a game of baseball. I'm sure that Harry and Meghan are are nice enough in private, and the great British public had nothing but love for them in the early days. The love affair was over in March 2021 when the couple did their infamous interview with Oprah where Meghan accused Princess Kate of making her cry. Prince Harry denounced his father King Charles and brother Prince William and accused them of being trapped in their roles, and they both threw a string of other accusations at his family. It was all pretty awful, especially after the way it began. Everything was going well back in 2018. We loved Megan, celebrated our first mixed-race member of the royal family, and welcomed our first Los Angelino to the join the House of Windsor. We felt a bit sorry for her since her estranged father couldn't join the wedding, and were happy that the then Prince Charles walked Megan down the aisle at her wedding. We enjoyed photos of the Queen welcoming Doria Roglin, Prince Charles' African American mechatinsta who once worked as a social worker in Silver Lake, East LA. There's no English word for the Yiddish which means you're a child's mother-in-law. Similarly, there isn't a Yiddish equivalent for the Oxford English Dictionary, usually called by its acronym the OED, although the Oxford Yiddish Dictionary would appropriately be referred to as the OYD. The OED. A proverbial elephant sits in the room with a big question about whether it is better to have a republic or a monarchy. What would it look like if you didn't have a monarchy? The answer is simple. America. Would rather have an unelected permanent queen with an elected prime minister, or blend the two systems and have a King Trump, Prince Pence, King Biden, and Queen Consort Kamala? God save the kings. Although there is a caveat... Despite the bad-mouthing, despite the looming threat of Prince Harry's forthcoming tell-all Lashon-Hara-fueled biography, despite his not showing up for his late grandfather Prince Philip's memorial service, the British public still love them, a bit like you love your slightly annoying cousins who make bad decisions but feel sorry for them because you know they had a rough childhood. We felt teary-eyed last month on, the, on seeing Harry and Meghan walk alongside William and Kate to look at the floral tributes a few days after the Queen's passing. King Charles even included a loving tribute to Harry and Meghan during his speech following his mother's death. Some are born great, some have greatness thrust upon them, and others leave Los Angeles to marry a British prince. Despite everything, there is one thing we all still want to see, a happy Hollywood ending. That was Satirical Semite Queen Meghan by Marcus J. Freed from the columnist section. Marcus J. Fried is an active writer, educator, and royalist. Website is www.marcusjfreed.com and on social at Marcus J. Freed. Alright, and we continue with the columnist section. This is called Life with Akiba by Daniel Kaufman. A sloppily dressed man called out and walked quickly in my direction. I looked around to see what, which rabbi he was talking to and then, frighteningly, I realized he was addressing me. Let me describe the situation. I'm at a Westfield mall, standing at the counter of a Nespresso store, buying sleeves of coffee pots. I'm wearing torn-up jeans, a t-shirt, and flip-flops. The only thing that betrays my faith is a kippah, and it sits it stringing, hanging by my side. The man approaches me intensely. Rabbi, I need help. I'm in a terrible place. I need more meaning in my life, and I don't know how to be happy. How can I be more happy? My immediate dis- uh, instinct was to say, Sorry, pile, I'm not a rabbi. Thankfully, I didn't offer up such a weak and pathetic response. Instead, I paused and considered his request. And really, what is a rabbi? A spiritual leader? Sure. Mostly a rabbi is a teacher. Here was an opportunity to step up and be both. I looked at the man patiently and con- contemplatively. I really took the moment and... Uh, and was present with him. Instantly, he relaxed and looked at me gratefully. It seemed like nobody had really looked at him or listened uh, to him for quite some time. I smiled gently. Believe it or not, you're in the perfect place. You're exactly where you are supposed to be. I swear I saw him gulp. The Jewish belief is that God runs the world. That means that everything happens exactly the way it's supposed to. You are in the perfect place. You have a unique and essential purpose so you don't have to worry about meaning you still have to do your part but it is not your job to worry about the results that is up to god i checked myself i did not want to sound evangelical nevertheless i asked tenuously do you believe in god he nodded emphatically then i asked do you trust god this was a question he had not anticipated that is the key if you want to be happy trust in god If you want to be more spiritual, trust in God. If you're worried about uh, meaning in life, trust in God. You don't have to worry about the things you cannot control. That's beyond your pay grade. Just do your part and trust that it will work out the way that it is supposed to work out. Was I sounding like a Sunday morning preacher? I got embarrassed and almost backed away from my words until the man heaved with relief and then held, held me for what seemed like a long time rabbi you can't imagine what you have done for me and then he was gone my friend david Sax recently said to me god has three answers yes not yet and i've got something better what a relief it is to trust that things are working exactly as they are supposed to how much better than to be obsessed with success results and things that are squarely out of our control that only leads to tension fear and anger The Gemara calls anger an act of avodah zahra, idol worship. If you get angry, it means that you don't believe that things are happening the way they are supposed to. It means you don't believe that God runs the world. If you did, it would be absurd to be angry because clearly what is happening is exactly as it should be. Looking back, I'm proud that I didn't shy away from the opportunity. For those precious seconds, that man endowed my, my life with meaning and purpose. But then I wonder if it was audacious for me to teach something I don't partic- do partially well, particularly well. Trusting God, it's a daily effort for me. But maybe that is part of teaching. Nobody expects me to be perfect, but me. That is my ego out of control. Truly, the man gave me much more hope than he took. In that moment, I stepped up and trusted God. Maybe he was a malak, a messenger, there to give me the lesson, give the lesson to me. That was Life with a Keepa by Daniel Kaufman from the columnist section. Daniel Kaufman is a filmmaker and writer. You can follow his blog, Confessions of an Orthodox Sinner, at www.facebook.com slash orthodoxsinner. And again from the columnist section, we have this one. Gambling on Health in California by Daniel Stone. Voters considering Propositions 26 and 27 California's gambling initiatives should think again if they believe they're getting all they need to know from the Secretary of State's Official Voters Guide. It's bad enough that voters endure a biased bombardment of advertising from moneyed special interests. It's even worse that they can't depend on the state to supply critical information on the substantial health uh, health impact of California's initiatives. If you review the guide's twelve pages on the two initiatives, you'll see assessments of their possible impact on state revenue, law enforcement, and local governments. Never once does the guide or its pro and con commentaries consider the major group most affected, California's gamblers. The The initiatives would allocate a small proportion of anticipated revenue to social programs for problem gamblers. But do these programs really help those with gambling addiction? Do they effectively address any of the uh, adverse financial, social, or health effects of gambling? You won't find a comment. Will greater access to gambling increase the number of Californians struggling with gambling addiction? The state doesn't seem to think that's important enough to consider. One reason that gamblers may be off the Secretary of State's radar is that that they are a stealth population. Although research suggests about 500,000 Californians are problem gamblers, they are out of the public eye, both collectively and individually. Many hide their financial tracks, leaving their families completely unaware of the issue. With alcohol addiction, in contrast, families can notice leftover bottles, altered behavior, and telltale alcohol breath. Doctors also have trouble identifying problem gamblers. We don't screen for gambling addictions and, Also, unlike alcoholism, gambling addiction lacks characteristic laboratory findings. Research also suggests that having a casino within 50 miles doubles the prevalence of the condition. The highest risk individuals are those suffering from substance abuse and mental illnesses such as depression and bipolar affective disorder. We should ask ourselves if these disorders... if these individuals would be likely to re, uh, resist the temptation of a constant online casino in your pocket as proposed by Proposition 27, many would likely suffer destabilization of their family life as well as their physical and mental health. I have only one patient with a known history of gambling addiction. JR 65 has abstained for many years since getting help from Gamblers Anonymous. Still, he vividly remembers the rush of winning and the intoxicating power of chasing that high. He also remembers the secrecy and the path of broken trust as his family's finances restrained and relationships damaged. JR's problems centered around slots and electronic poker, not the sports betting uh, currently on the ballot. But he recognizes that the gambler's rush affects different people in different ways. He sees sports betting as a gambler's getaway drug, gateway drug. He also worries about the reliability of the measures to prevent uh, minors from using online gambling. Not surprisingly, the issue was also not adequately addressed by the state's ballot guide. Despite the experience of a gambling nightmare, Jr. appreciates the flip side of the coin. Those who bet responsibly on sports use disposable income want convenient legal options. They might ask why others' addiction problems should interfere with their choices for their pursuit of happiness. Striking a balance between the libertarian pursuit of individual freedom and the social benefit of reducing risk to the community is just one issue posed by the gambling propositions. Voters will also need to consider the potential benefits of anticipated increase in tax revenue. Some will also view these initiatives as a test of the legitimacy of the special interest tactic of allocating a cut of the profit to socially popular programs like aid to the homeless to attract support. Sorting out all these complexities would challenge any voter. But how can we expect citizens to make appropriate, informed choices when the state reneges on its obligation to fully inform them? The initiative process should not be a game of chance in which voters choose now and learn about undisclosed health health uh, consequences later rather than rolling the dice on these initiatives california's voters should oppose both and send a message to the secretary of state and the initiative industry that they won't approve ballot measures that neglect adequate consideration of public health that was gambling on health in california by daniel stone from the columnist section daniel stone is a regional medical director of cedars-sinai valley network and a practicing internist and geriatric uh, geriatrician with Cedar Sinai Medical Group. The views expressed in this column do not necessarily reflect those of Cedar Sinai. All right, now we go on to the My Turn section, and this is called "Why Fear God" by Paul Sacken. The Torah states repeatedly that we should fear God. Why fear? That sentiment is so out of keeping with our modern sensibilities. It seems harsh, counterintuitive. Why fear a loving God? The Torah does emphasize loving God as well, but there is at least an equal emphasis on fear. The concept of fear of God appears five times in Leviticus alone. Since Talmudic times, uh, our sages have grappled with this issue and arrived at deeply insightful conclusions. Importantly, the Hebrew words yerat shamayim can mean fear of heaven but also have other connotations. In Yurat Shamayim in Jewish thought, Ron Zev Harvey points out the term's manifold possibilities. He suggests that the concept is the Talmudic response to the Greek belief that freedom is achieved by freeing oneself from fear of the gods. Judaism, on the other hand, embraces the idea of fearing God. Fear is viewed positively because it reflects an attitude. One's moral behavior is in one's control, and so one can choose moral virtues. If humans have agency in the moral realm, then we that then we can choose or not to give them ourselves to, to, go, uh, to govern ourselves according to the divine will. That means that what is really under discussion is better translated as an awareness of div- the divine imperative and respect for the transient truth transcendent truth. Harvey notes that renowned biblical Bible scholar Nahama Leibowitz considered fearing God a universal ethical principle, a regulatory ethical principle between individuals of different nations, and in particular between ruling nationals and the minorities. Similarly, the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas asserts that Yirat Shamayim does not refer to fear of punishment. Or rather, in Harvey's words, a sobering awareness of one's infinite ethical obligations to other human beings, and in this awareness, God is revealed. According to Levinas, then, the concept is as much about our relationship with one another as it is about our relationship with God. A modern reader many, uh, may, may understand this emphasis on Yirat Shamayim as relating to a transcendent authority for moral and ethical behavior. We live in a secular culture where many are are indifferent or even hostile to religion. And not without reason. Institutional religion has not covered itself in glory over the centuries. Furthermore, lack of religion does not imply a lack of moral and ethical values. Secular people can be as good as, if not better, than religious people. But a wholesale rejection of religion invites a world of self-centeredness a lack of the ethical core that was born of religious teachings. The fact that religious institutions have often not lived up to their own ideals does not undermine the value of those ideals. The Torah's misfot are not nullified because some of its practitioners betrayed the message. Parshat Shoftim, Deuteronomy 17, 18-20, commands a king to write two Torah scrolls and to read from them every day so that his heart not become haughty over his brethren. At a time when Pharaohs consider themselves gods, this is an extraordinary demand. The purpose is that the king be reminded that he is not a god and that he treat others as commanded in the Torah, giving all citizens respect and dignity. With no fear of God, with no transcendent and eternal moral values, people have no barrier to committing whatever evil they want. Instead, other fears take its place. Conspiracy theories in which dark forces try to control the world and fear of the other, uh, those unlike us, lead, uh, lead to racism and anti-Semitism. Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson points to an instructive detail in the Moses story. <clears throat> Pharaoh ordered the midwives to the Jews to murder Jewish newborn boys. He was the mightiest of tyrants, but the midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Exodus 1:5-21. How could they exhibit such extraordinary courage if they didn't believe more in the eternal power than the temporary one? Interviews after World War II with the righteous who saved Jews in Europe, revealed that many did so because they were religious Christians who were guided by spiritual and moral considerations. Like the midwives of Egypt, they made the only possible choice, to save life instead of allowing it to be destroyed. In The Great Partnership, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs explores the idea of religion as essential to society's moral and ethical functioning. He points out that what made a Abrahamic monotheism unique is that it endowed life with meaning. When a society loses its religion, it tends not to last very long thereafter. It discovers that having severed the ropes that more its morality to something transcendent, all it has left us all it has left is relativism, and relativism, relativism is incapable of defending anything, including itself. For Sacks, It is an obstacle illusion that we can abandon belief in God and leave nothing unchanged. The ramifications of a civilization without religion are profound. We live in a complex, quickly changing world uh, with countless preoccupations and concerns. It is easy to dismiss religion without realizing that its loss only compounds the problems of our troubled world instead of healing it. That was Why Fear God by Paul Saakon. From the my turn section dr paul Sacken is distinguished professor emeritus and founder of the jewish studies program at the university of waterloo let's conclude with this from the my turn section president biden must stop funding the u.n inquisition against israel by karen lehrman block <clears throat> very little media attention has been given to the fact that president biden brought the u.s back to the u.n human rights council arguably the most anti-semitic institution on the planet Its latest outrage is a commission of inquiry that is so blatantly anti-Semitic it can be best described as a form of inquisition in its taut in its lies and shameless mockery of human rights. For most of the UN's existence, one could be excused for forgetting that it emerged in 1945 out of the ashes of the Holocaust. Indeed, over the decades, various Russian-Arab collusions have systematically and sadistically targeted the world's only Jewish state from the Zionism is racism calumny to the disproportionate condemnations, but now we've reached a new low. Last Thursday, the COI announced it will investigate the allegation that Israel is an apartheid state. The ongoing investigation was set up by the HRC following last year's 11-day battle between Israel and Gaza terrorists. To no one's surprise, It has focused nearly exclusively on Israel. The COI's announcement follows the release of its second report, which called on the UN Security Council to end Israel's permanent occupation and urged UN member uh, states to prosecute Israeli officials. Navy Pillay, a former UN human rights chief who chairs the COI, called apartheid a manifestation of the occupation. We're focusing on the root of the on the root cause, which is the occupation, and part of it lies in apartheid, Pillai say. That's the beauty of this open-ended mandate. It gives us the scoop. Beauty is not a word that typically comes to mind when thinking about the UN, nor is, the tr- is truth or justice. Let's start with the so-called Human Rights Council, whose members include China, Libya, Somalia, and Sudan, where one wonders are Iran and North Korea. And then we have the three members of the COI. The commissioners were chosen precisely because they abhor the Jewish state, said Israeli ambassador to the UN Gilad Erdem at a press conference held by Stan stand with us Thursday morning. Each of them had declared Israel guilty of the very crimes they were charged with investigating before they began, echoed Anne Baevsky, director of the Toro Institute on Human Rights and the Holocaust. UN Watch has documented multiple instances of Pillai accusing Israel of apartheid, some as recently as 2020. She also used the phrase the extremist Israel lobby and supports the BDS movement. In July, Commission member Milun Kothari made comments about the undue influence of a so-called Jewish lobby on the media. He has also questioned why Israel was in the UN. In June, member Chris Sedoti from Australia dismissed all Jewish victims with the retort, accusations of anti Semitism are thrown around like rice at a wedding. Then there's the inquiry itself. The COI called for submissions on systematic discrimination and repression and underlying root causes, but then sent the submissions that challenged the pre arranged end game directly to the trash, said Baevsky. In an unprecedented response, in the history of the UN human rights game, Bayevsky said, the Toro Institute and a group of eminent research centers submitted more than 5 million unique submissions of dissent. And yet Pillay openly told the press in June she hadn't seen them and dismissively labeled them as all pro-Israel. In today's report, there are dozens of references to non-UN organizations. Every one of them trash talks Israel. Not one participating so-called pro-Israel NGO sees the light of day. The 28-page report is sprinkled with a series of highlighted quotations from Palestinians in Hebron, writes Baevsky. One contains a blood libel about Jews arriving in Palestinian homes in the middle of the night and threatening to burn the human beings inside. Another claims that Jews are child molesters intent on feeling the breasts of Palestinian girls. As as Carly Gamil, director of SWU Center uh, for Combating Anti-Semitism, put it, Israel is even somewhat responsible for the violence that Palestinian men choose to perpetuate against Palestinian women. Do Navi Pillay and her fellow commissioners also blame the honor killings and second-class citizenship of Palestinian women on Israelis? And why stop there? By the Commission's logic, it would also need to blame Israel for these same tragic conditions in other Middle East countries, like Saudi Arabia and Iran. The COA has called for Israel to immediately withdraw from the West Bank, while making no demands of the Palestinians. Indeed, notably absent from the report are many mentions of Hamas terror rockets or terrorism. The Inquisition's advocate that Israelis being hunted down, prosecuted, and jailed for crimes against humanity, writes Bayevsky. they couldn't name a single Palestinian crime worth uh, prosecuting. The shameless prejudice exhibited in the report is shocking, she adds, even by UN standards. The summary brazenly announces that it is only about the human rights implications for Palestinians. Apparently, Jews, according to the HRC, aren't worthy of human rights. President Trump withdrew from the HRC in 2018, largely due to the systematic discrimination against Israel. Biden brought the U.S. back last year, continuing to provide sig- uh, significant funding for the UN and the HRC. In June, Senators Tim Skarr, Republican of South Carolina, and Jackie Rosen, Democrat of Nevada, introduced the Commission of Inquiry and Elimination Act to withhold U.S. funding to, uh, for the HRC because of its blatant bias against Israel. Funding would be withheld until the Secretary of State certifies that the HRC has abolished its COI. President Biden's words of support for Israel are appreciated, but not enough. It's time for the President to put his money where his mouth is and support a bipartisan initiative that establishes consequences for the most anti-Semitic institution on the planet. Anyone who believes in justice must urge him to do so. Today it is no longer politically correct to blame Jews for all the world's problems so anti-Semites adapt, said Ambassador Erden. Rather than burning Jews at the stake, anti-Semites burn the Jewish state of the stake. This is exactly what the UN constantly does. Mr. President, it's your time to act and show the world that this inquisition against Jews will not stand. That was President Biden must stop funding the UN inquisition against Israel. By Karen Lerman Block, from the My Turn section of the uh, uh, from the My Turn section of the Jewish Journal for November fourth through the 10th, 2022. Karen Lerman Block is the editor in chief of White Rose Magazine. Well, folks, we're just about to come to the end of a, another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish edition. Let's just take a look at one ad from the from the same Jewish edition. Jewish Journal, November 4th through the 10th, 2022. Let's get social. Uh, J, Jewish Journal on Facebook, Twitter, and, and Instagram. And so... We're going to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening right here regarding us Jews in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. And so until until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun, saying to you, Shalom and peace.